0: Hello and welcome to Restoration Church's Teaching of the Week. If this is your first time, welcome. So glad that you were able to join us. If you'd like to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about restoration, you can go to restorationaz.org. And with that said, we hope you enjoy this week's teaching from Landon Myers. Alright, if you uh, have a Bible or want to uh, use your Phone for the scriptures. We're going to be uh, primarily in the books of Jeremiah and Daniel this morning. So you can kind of go ahead and, and turn there to get prepped. Last week we kind of had week zero. Today we're officially launching our next practice, which is called uh, faithful citizenship. And so we'll spend the next weeks not only hopefully uh, learning and talking about what it means to be faithful citizens to both King Jesus and the community we live in, but putting that into practice. And uh, as we frequently say, practice goes better with the team. And so we've got groups meeting all around the greater uh, Prescott area that we call practice groups to walk through this content and actually put it into practice together. And before uh, we officially jump into these next six weeks, I, I want to just pause for a second and kind of urge you uh, to recognize that what we're stepping into, I believe, is going to be really powerful. It's going to be really good, and it's going to be moving, I hope, and pray and believe yet, and it is going to be hard. The the conversations that we're going to step into and have the perspectives, you're going to realize that other people that are sitting in the same rows as you share might be surprising. They might be uncomfortable. There's a lot of different people with different backgrounds and histories and stories within this room. And so I want to urge you as we step into practicing and dialoguing and walking uh, faithfully as we follow Jesus through these next six weeks to embrace a level of maturity, Not necessarily age, but of patience, of wisdom, of empathy, of of recognizing the importance, not of being right all the time. We often think we're right when we're not. But the value of being able to sit at a table and share a meal and listen and dialogue and have conversation even with people that disagree, My my prayer for us throughout this practice is that we'd be unified. Not conformed, but unified as we follow Jesus through conversations that aren't going to be just easy. That we'd be good listeners, but also bold enough to talk and have the conversations. And so I urge you to step into this with a humility, a courage, a wisdom, because I think what we're doing uh, really is Very important, and I want to just pause now and pray just the Lord's blessing upon these next six weeks. And Jesus, I pray that you go before us in every home, in this building, as these groups meet, as we dive into your word and the scriptures today, God, that you give us unity, that you'd allow us to love those with us and across from us, to learn your ways, to speak like you do. God, give us eyes to see what you want us to see in this time ears to hear what you want us to hear, and a heart to feel what you want us to feel. Not to get distracted by tendencies and passions, but that you would truly lead. We love you and guide us in this. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start specifically this morning posing a question to you. Do you believe that we as Christians should want to live within a Christian nation? Should we as Christians want a Christian nation? I love the body language. It happened in the last service too. There's like this uncomfortable movement. Some of you nodded your heads right away. Some of you shook your head right away. And some of you don't even know what I'm talking about. To kind of push the envelope down a little bit further, to what degree do you value the religious freedoms that we have in our country? The fact that you can live into the values of Jesus, because our country provides that opportunity. What about the religious freedoms and values of people that have beliefs other than ours? What about their religious freedoms and values that actually contradict ours to the degree you might feel as if those values and freedoms impose upon our own? So often we think that things are so simple, but there's a lot of complexity in religious freedom. There's these questions that are posed that really just aren't comfortable that's kind of like a gift from me to you for next Thanksgiving dinner. Just throw out those questions, and I promise you, it's going to go really, really well. If you've ever been on a road trip, you know that the first half of the road trip, whenever you're trying to get to wherever you want to go, it's a lot easier than the road trip back. Back. Because on the return you don't have that thing, that trip, that time, the person, activity, whatever it is to look forward to. It's in the past, and so the return trip is really kind of just boring. It's not as exciting. And the the scriptures, there's these four teenage boys, most likely teenagers, very quickly having to become men, and they're on this road trip, and it is the worst of worst road trips. It's terrible. They actually have nothing to look forward to, even though it's on the front end of this road trip for them. I imagine they find themselves into this tightly packed with other kids their age cart, and it's probably splintery. And as they're being taken in this cart on this road trip, there's all kinds of these violent bumps along this not real good road that they're on. And I envision there's these warm tears, Streaking down their cheeks, and one of them closes his eyes and remembers. And the memory that's coming to mind for him is not as much a sight as it is a sound. And it's a high pitched wail. And it's multiple voices of mothers in his neighborhood wailing together because their kids have just been taken. And his memory is not just the sound, it's actually also a feeling because he remembers the pressure placed on his body as he was forcibly taken by other hands and placed into this cart with some friends he knew, nonetheless being forced to leave everything he knew behind. It's also the the sense of smell as those boys are taken from this city and their neighborhood and their town, everything they love, and they smell the smoke of their home, and they experience its destruction through their nose, and they're leaving, and he remembers this just hours before. And at this point, his face is caked with mud as the dusty trail and the tears on his face mix. They try to sleep a little bit, and when he wakes up, it's a different memory. It's actually good. It's pleasant. It's reminiscing on a few nights before all this happens, And his dad was leading a discussion at the table and mom was laughing and his siblings were playing and they were eating the the foods they loved and they were praying and worshiping and all seemed good. But now on the splintery, dusty cart with mud on his face, that's all a distant, near-dead memory. It's all that's left. Those boys Mm -hmm. taken from their homes, taken from a government that was designed to be a godly Jewish nation, from the temple where they worshiped their God, that's all stripped away. And I imagine they were probably asking similar questions to the ones I posed. What's next? What will it be like? What will we be allowed to do? What will be forced upon us? They probably longed very quickly for the food their mom made. They probably longed for their normal worship settings, for the Jewish governments that Yahweh God provided in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, but that was all gone. Now they needed to listen to Yahweh God once again in his specific call for them to be faithful in this moment on this journey as they entered exile. That was their new Reality. You've probably heard maybe these boys' names. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Those were their names at least until they got changed. They lost even their names. New names were given to them. Names of other gods actually insulting everything they knew. Those boys learned a lot in that cart on their way to a new home called Babylon. Babylon. And they learned a lot when they entered a a new life in Babylon as exiles. And I actually think there's four specific perspectives they had to adopt that I believe we also need to adopt in our moment today in the United States. And so today we're going to talk about these four perspectives of an exile and how those led them to be faithful citizens of King Jesus and of their new home. Uh, Real briefly, I want to talk about three books of the Bible that we're going to be interacting with a lot. The first is Deuteronomy, and that word in in the original Hebrew literally means second law. It's the second time the law is given for a Jewish nation. Their government was founded on religion. And that's what uh, these four boys' forefathers had established for them. The second book is Jeremiah And Jeremiah contains the words of a prophet, God speaking to the prophet, and the prophet then speaking to his people that were being exiled. Then the last book is the book of Daniel, and it's really the firsthand experience of some of those exiles that Jeremiah spoke to. So that's kind of the the context, the setting, the type of literature uh, that the scriptures provide for us that we're gonna be interacting with this morning. So the first Perspective of an exile that they learned that I believe we need to adopt is this. We are where God has us, even if that is hard to believe or accept. We are in this moment breathing the breaths where God has designed us to breathe those breaths, even if that's not where we want to be or what we like. Start reading here in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the rest of the elders of the exiles, the priests, the prophets, and all the people Nebuchadnezzar had deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. This was after King Jeconiah, the queen mother. The court officials, the officials of Judah and Jerusalem, the craftsmen and the metalsmiths had left Jerusalem. The letter was sent by Elisa, son of Shapon, and Gamariah, son of Hilkiah, whom Zedekiah, king of Judah, had sent to Babylon to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. The letter stated This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Seek the welfare of the city I have deported you to. Pray to the Lord on its behalf for when it has prosperity, you will prosper. Verse eight, for this is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel says. Do not let your prophets who are among you and your diviners deceive you and don't listen to the dreams you elicit from them for they are prophesying falsely to you in my name. I have not sent them. This is the Lord's declaration. For clarity, that's still happening today to people speaking in the name of Jesus who tell people things they want to hear when it's not true. And it's damaging and it's devastating just like it was then. Verse 10, for this is what the Lord says, when 70 years, that's the number of these four boys here, when 70 years for Babylon are complete, I will attend to you and will confirm my promise concerning you to restore you to this place. For I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. It's two key, very uncomfortable verses in that section. I want to go back to those, verse 4 and 14. This is what the Lord of hosts, Yahweh, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles. I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon. Who did the deporting? God himself. That's uncomfortable. Verse 14. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration. And I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and places where who banished you. I banished you. This is the Lord's declaration. I will restore you to the place I deported you from. That's not comforting. That's not encouraging, but it's there. Now, there's a whole lot that goes into this context of why it is that God is deporting and exiling them in this moment that we don't have time to go into today. But the point remains, God led them there. God had them where he had them. God led them to this moment, to a moment they did not want to be in. Similarly for us, depending on your perspective, if God wanted our nation to be a Christian nation right now or our government to be a Christian government right now, it would be. But it's not. He's God and he's sovereign and he's fully capable, but the breaths we're breathing in this moment are the breaths he wants us to breathe in this moment. Some of us might not like that but that is the reality we face. Rick McKinley, in his book, Faith of This Moment, uh, frames it this way. I think it's powerful. The God of Israel in exile is the God of the church in 21st century America. And this is the God who is still free to direct the course of history and reveal himself to his people and to the world as he pleases. If we don't embrace this reality, it's gonna be really challenging to be faithful citizens of both King Jesus and of the community that we find ourselves within. It might not be a comfortable reality, but it is the reality we find ourselves in. We are where God has us, whether we want to be there, like to be there, whether we long for something different or not. And I do need to state, it's okay to want something different than where God has you. It's okay to want something better. In fact, we were made for perfection and he will return us to that and all will be good. There will be no tears or crying or anguish or hatred or racism or injustices. None of that will exist. It will all be good, but right now is not. We have a mixture of beautiful and broken. And again, it's okay to want something old, something new, something different, yet simultaneously, we need to accept the fact that the breaths we're breathing in this moment are the breaths he has us breathing because he's still God. He can do as he pleases and in this moment this is where we find ourselves. It could be about your vocation or job, about your neighborhood, about a relationship you have or maybe a relationship you don't have that you wish you had. It could be about your financial situation. It could be about A whole bunch of different things. But both of those truths can be held at the same time. We can want and have been created for and saved for something different than what our present moment is and God has us in this present moment. Perspective number two of an exile I believe we need to adopt. We are like exiles. Most of us are not exiles you were not probably forced from your home and forced into an entirely foreign different reality though that still happens yet there's still a ton of parallels and similarities I think we have to get our head out of the sand about and acknowledge otherwise we don't know what we're doing we're living in a reality that's not real Daniel chapter 1, 1 through 7, paints this picture. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and laid siege to it. The Lord handed Jehoiakim, king of Judah, over to him. In case we didn't grasp the first point in Jeremiah, the Lord handed him over, a bad king nonetheless, but hold on, along with some of the vessels from the house of God. Hear this, the holy things of the temple God gave to the bad guy to go put in the bad God's temple. Here's what this tells me our God does not struggle with insecurity. He's not worried. He says, Take it, it doesn't matter because there's no power or authority or influence in this world that God is not allowing to hold that position for this time and place. So God goes, Bad king, bad temple, bad gods, here you go. You're not actually in charge. True power can truly be found when there's not insecurity, and our God has zero insecurity going on. Verse 3, the king ordered Ashpenaz... Incredible name, if you're looking for a name for a child. The king ordered him, the chief of his court officials, to bring some of the Israelites from the royal family and from the nobility, young men without any physical defects, good-looking, suitable for instruction and in all wisdom, knowledge, perceptive and capable of serving in the king's palace, and to teach them the Chaldean language and literature. The king assigned them daily provisions from the royal food and from the wine that he drank. They were to be trained for three years. Here, cultural university for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to serve in the king's court. Among them from the descendants of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them other names. We'll go into depth on this in later weeks. He gave them the name Belteshazzar to Daniel, Shadrach to Hananiah, Meshach to Mishael, and Abednego to Azariah. Again, this is their new reality. Nebuchadnezzar did something really innovative, innovative, powerful, influential that the Romans would later adopt as well. When they overpowered a nation, they did not destroy them and blot them out from history because they were resources to be used. He had a better way, and that was to assimilate them. To make sure they knew they were not in charge, but to give them religious freedom and opportunity to express themselves as they were to a degree. And this way, eventually, when they took the best and the brightest of that culture, of that nation, and taught them to love and enjoy their own customs and culture and ways and values, those would hand it down to the rest of the nation. And all of a sudden, instead of losing a chunk of his army and people in a war, he would gain an entire new population to drive what he wanted to drive next. There was more power and prestige and potential for the king. And so all of a sudden, these Jewish boys faced all kinds of pressures from the culture that they found themselves in. Back to Faith for This Moment by Rick McKinley, He says this, "'We can in some ways resonate with Nebuchadnezzar's tactics. "'The culture in which we live "'has created a similar type of captivity for God's people. "'In America, the church lives with relative religious freedom, "'and many followers of Jesus have been lulled to sleep. "'The cultural norms surrounding sex, money, and power "'have been practically adopted wholesale "'by many believers in their day-to-day lives.'" In a different book, David Kinnaman, who operates a, a research group called Barna, particularly uh, around religious kind of data and research, he says this in a book called Faith for Exiles. 25 years ago, U.S. researchers like those of us at Barna were, not, were more likely than today to contend with uh, religious social desirability bias, He just explains that as a desire on the part of survey respondents to be perceived as more spiritually engaged than they actually are. That's because there was, keyword was, greater societal pressure to present oneself as a person of faith, even to an anonymous interviewer. That pressure has all but evaporated. It exists now only in pockets of Christian subculture. That's a shift. For us today. David Kinneman, the author of that quote, continues to express this picture for us. We often think of culture kind of like the, the backdrop or the stage, the structure for a play or a drama of some sort. Behind the curtain, there's been a team that built that setting, that backdrop, that stage. And we often think of culture as that, the backdrop for the story of our lives. It's there, it's viewable, but it doesn't necessarily influence the characters in the story. And he makes the argument that culture is more like one of the characters in the drama, in the play. It's way more involved than the mere backdrop. It's a character that manipulates and persuades. Culture rewards us and causes us to have fears and reactions. It groups different people together. It causes people to take uh, actions and choices that they might not otherwise take. Culture is like a character interacting with the rest of us. And if we're not aware of it, it will have significant and likely negative impact i got to be very clear in this. Culture is not a bad thing. One of God's first commands is to go make culture. It can be neutral, good and bad, but if we're unaware of the pressures it is placing upon us, it will have a devastating impact on us. For us, the, the language of exiles might be weird and foreign to adopt. But but I do think it is appropriate. If you look at our nation's history, Christianity has been unbelievably influential. It's at its hand in almost every aspect of life, not just the spiritual. In the building of hospitals and universities, of cities, in the midst of government, it has been incredibly influential. But if you compare a certain day in our history to today, the influence has shrunk Dramatically. There was a day when instead of placing other on the survey, you would just put Christian. It was the norm to just do that. That day is dead and gone. In both good ways and bad ways, actually. Christians used to have a significant voice and to be the majority, that is no longer the case. We no longer have the voice of the mob behind us. We're a minority in so many things. Again, that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just a reality that has to be grasped. In reference to, to some of the data that they had collected, David Kinneman says this, at the time we collected data for that project, 59% of young adults with a Christian background told us they had dropped out of church involvement. Almost six out of 10 some for an extended period of time, some for good. In less than a decade, the proportion of 18 to 29-year-old dropouts has increased. Today, nearly two-thirds of all young adults who were once regular churchgoers have dropped out at one time or another. Our contention is that today's society is especially and insidiously faith-repellent. Certainly, God's people have weathered hostile seasons in the past. Church history reminds us that living faithfully has never been easy. But our research shows that resilient faith is tougher to grow today using the cultivation methods we relied on throughout the 20th century. Things have changed. And we'd be ignorant not to acknowledge and have awareness of how things have changed. They're going to impact really everything about the way in which we follow Jesus. One more quote from this book, he continues to say this, and this is, this is impactful, we need to hear this. The verdict of that research is that many families and churches have lost their way in terms of effectively discipling the next generation. We believe many parents, educators, pastors, and other leaders are trying to prepare young Christians for Jerusalem to keep them safe and well-protected for a world they no longer live in. We have to have new eyes to see. We live in a very post-Christian culture. We need to be aware of this. Number one, we are where God has us, whether we want Want that to be reality or not, it is. Number two, we are like exiles. And that leads us to number three. It is not our responsibility to change the world. However, it is our calling to be faithful where we are now. It is only and solely the responsibility of Jesus to change and save the world we play a role in his mission, no doubt, but that is not our responsibility. Our calling by him is to be faithful with the breaths that we breathe now in this moment, here and now. And often, we as the church are a really distracted group. We don't know how to be faithful in this moment. Those four boys had everything ripped from them. Everything in the rearview mirror was burning, literally. Their parents, their lives, their customs, their food, their places of worship, gone. But they had to face a new reality and the call that Yahweh was giving them to be faithful in what was next. Back to to Jeremiah 29. It's probably top three quoted verses in the scriptures Probably top three of verses or phrases you see Christians get tattooed. And it's probably top three for the most misunderstood and used out of context verses there are in the scriptures. This part of it sounds wonderful. In verse 11, God says, for I know the plans I have for you. This is the Lord's declaration. Plans for your welfare, not for disaster. To give you a future and hope. You will call to me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. I will be found by you. This is the Lord's declaration, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you and it sounds great and people get it tattooed and it's all wonderful and we're excited about what God is doing and we have it totally out of context because one verse before for this is what the Lord says when 70 years for Babylon are complete then I will attend to you and confirm my promise in essence once you've died there because you're not coming home I will bring your children back But I'm telling you this now so you don't get distracted by what's in the rear view mirror, because you're not coming home. Where you're going is your new home. Another way he puts it can be kind of understood in verse four. This is what the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, says to all the exiles, once again, I deported from Jerusalem to Babylon build houses and live in them, make it your home. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Add value there. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters to men from there in marriage so that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not crease. Have relationships with everybody. Yes, even those people. Them too. That's what God says. Seek the welfare of the city. In essence, seek what is best, even of your enemies. Pray to the Lord on its behalf. Yes, pray for your enemies. For when it has prosperity, so will you. That's not comfortable to hear, but that is the calling that was given. They needed to recognize that they could not and were not responsible to change the world in that moment, though I'm sure they wanted to. What they were responsible for was to be faithful with the breaths they were given, with the people around them, and that time and place. And we, too, as the church, have to take responsibility for the breaths that we get each day. And the places where we walk into and work, and the neighborhoods we live in, and the streets that we share. What does it look like to embrace the new home, this new reality, to not take on responsibility to change the world, but to embrace the calling Jesus has given us for these breaths and these moments in this place? Here's one example, and we're going to spend quite a bit more time talking about it in the next Five weeks. When we think about politics and legislation, there's a call for us there. That is the here and now. We have the opportunity to influence the school district and school boards, how streets are paved, where money goes to. We have that opportunity. There's three things pose as kind of a framework to think through what it looks like to not take on responsibility to change the world, but to embrace our calling today in these moments. Number one is this. We're called to be involved. When it comes to legislation, we should vote. We should care because it matters. Not saying on one side or the other, but we should be involved. Number two, we should be influential in our involvement. I don't know the degree for each of us, that might be different, but the way of Jesus is good. He seeks justice and what is best and love for all, and so though we might understand that in different ways, we should seek to be influential by bringing the good of our God into the midst of our communities. And number three, most of us are probably okay with number one or two, here's where we get into some trouble. We need to not be power-hungry as we do that. That's being involved, being influential, and not being power-hungry. Here's why. Because legislation and government is not our savior. King Jesus is, and he reigns. Now we can still be involved, and we should be, but our hope is not in laws. Our hope is in Jesus who reigns as king. Maybe that's a perspective, a framework, a way of thinking of what it looks like to not take on the responsibility only Jesus can bear to change the world or to save it, but rather to be faithful with our breaths in this place and in this moment. Our fourth and final perspective of an exile, I believe we need to adopt. Faithfulness as exiles requires constant discernment means we need to be both wise and quick on our feet and with our minds and with our tongues. And by quick with our tongues, I probably mean very slow with our tongues. We need to think before we speak. We also need to listen before we speak. An ear is way more powerful in today's cultural moment than a tongue is. There's a million voices. Anyone can hear whatever they want to hear. But when someone actually listens to another person, especially if they think something differently, that's powerful because it's unique. What we need to be able to do, like I said at the beginning, is sit at a table and share a meal with someone who has a viewpoint very different from mine and start with listening. doesn't mean we can't hold strong convictions. We can and should. But Jesus was able to sit at that table and cause us to sit at the table and have conversations in love to seek what is best. As exiles, we need to know when to bless our culture, want to humbly resist our culture, keyword humbly, that's a whole week we'll, we'll spend talking about that, and how to bring the wisdom and good of the love of our God into our land, how to live into the gray areas, because there's a lot of gray areas. If you think the, the answers of what it looks like to follow Jesus in the midst of this cultural moment are simple, I don't really have another way to say this, but there's ignorance blinding you. That's just the reality. It's not simple. That would be pride blocking us from having sight to see that there's complexity in the midst of this gray. And we have to learn to dive right into the gray and trust the spirit to give us wisdom and leadership and love and discernment in the midst of this. Rick McKinley says it this way. What we will discover is that Israel in exile gives us great insight into living in this new world. As we're about to see, the way in which the people of God navigated their faithfulness to God in exile was not to burn Babylon or to baptize Babylon, but to find distinct ways in which to bless and resist Babylon. In the process, they discovered ways to be faithful in their given moment in which they found themselves. They teach us how we might find a way forward for ourselves as we follow an ancient path into this volatile new world. If Daniel and his friends just looked back and did not embrace the new home they had, the new world, it would have been devastating. They probably actually wouldn't have survived because they wouldn't have created any value. But they also just would have been eternally miserable because what they would have been looking back at was gone. Yet God still gave them an opportunity to form something new and good. It's the same for us. Somebody shared this kind of metaphor with me about a different context, but it applies. If you're driving on the streets we drive on, the rearview mirror is an incredibly important tool. It gives you awareness and context. It gives you an idea of who might be in your blind spot. It saves all kinds of people from death and car accidents and having to deal with insurance, which is never fun. All kinds of issues because of this tool called the rearview mirror. But if you spend too much time, which is not all that much time to get to too much time, looking in the rear view mirror, two things are guaranteed to happen. One, you will not get where you want to go, the place that is good that you desire. Number two, you will crash. Number three is not guaranteed, but it's highly likely. You will hurt people along the way. If we as Christians are ignorant to the reality we live in in this cultural moment, there's a really good chance you're going to hurt loved ones along the way because you're not aware of what is actually happening. We have to have eyes to see. We have to embrace this call and responsibility, not to save the world, but to be faithful in the moment with the breaths Jesus has given us today. I'll close with this. What is a faithful citizen? I think it's simply someone who loves those surrounding them, friends, enemies, and everyone in between. Someone who loves those around them is simply like what the prophet Jeremiah said, someone who seeks the best interest of those around him. Once again, friends, that's easy. Enemies, that's a lot harder. And everyone in between by seeking their interest while also humbly resisting the portions of our culture that are antithetical to the way of Jesus. That's the call we have. It's not easy. It's hard. But it's good. And it's worthwhile. And we have the same promise that these exiles received. That God would be with them. That he would restore and that he would work. Jesus said the same thing. And surely I am with you always, always. the very end of the age. And so as we embark on this practice, we can know that Jesus is with us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your love. Thank you for good and beauty in the midst of broken. God, I pray that you'd help us to care about the things that you want us to care about. By your spirit, give us wisdom, maturity, to have conversations and relationships, to dive right into the gray when we don't understand it all, to be humble and loving, yet strong. We love you. May you bless this time as we seek to be faithful to you as our king and to this community you've placed us in. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks for joining us. Once again, we are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona, and we are so thankful that you were able to tune in. If this is your first time, welcome. Uh, jump over to restorationaz.org to listen to past teachings or to learn a little bit more about who we are and what we're about. Um, and if you have questions or if you'd like to connect with us, um, go ahead and hit that contact tab. We'd love to connect with you. And uh, until next time, remember... Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.